So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good evening. And for those of you who are not from the LSE, welcome to the London School of Economics. Uh, my name is Ricky Burdett. I'm a professor of urban studies here at the school, and together with Philip Rode and other colleagues, uh, run one of the research centers here called LSE Cities. And um, it's really a great pleasure, uh, as and I can see shared by many other people tonight, to welcome uh, Herbie Girardet back to the LSE, even though he has complained that he hasn't been here as much as he should have been over the years since he graduated um, uh, in anthropology a few decades ago. We'll come to that in a moment. Now, Herbert Girardet has uh, probably shaped more generations of sort of ecological environmentally aware thinking than anyone else I know. And this literally goes to people who are now waking up to this issue in their 20s or to colleagues and friends of mine like uh, Richard Rogers, now in his elegant 80s, who really rethought the whole design and urban agenda as a result of being introduced to uh, Herbie's ideas, which go back from the, at least the, the 70s onwards. Uh, his talk as ever, is provocative. It's not just a sort of uh, taking the title of his wonderful book, which came out last year, which is positive, creative re re Creating Regenerative Cities. The title of the talk is, In This Urbanizing World, Is It a Triumph or Is It a Tragedy? Uh, and, you know, I think words from you like that are heavy, and we need to take the, and weigh them very seriously, because there, there is a sort of sense that because to a degree, the environmental agenda is out there at some level, not just in cities but um, uh, more widely, that in a way part of the solutions and many of the solutions which I know you will talk about are sort of positive. But I think that the message of your book and the message of many of the things you've been talking about, we have to be consistently aware uh, and keep on sort of putting these things out in the public realm. Now, Herbie's been doing that for 40 years, and not just as a scholar and as an activist, which is very much what he's been doing, but as someone who's always tried to influence as many people who are ready to listen, and there have been thousands, if not millions, who've seen over 50 of his films on a whole series of environmental issues, uh, done with the BBC, um, BBC Two, and now um, nearly, uh, nearly 20 books have been produced, including this last one. Now, I mentioned that uh, I run with a number of colleagues <coughs> here, a research center which is actually interested in understanding the dynamics between the social world and the physical world in cities. And over the years, for obvious reasons, over the last 15 years that we've been here, the environmental agenda has become very much part of that. And in terms of a sort of reference point, there's no doubt that Herbie Girardet's work is central to that. The connection between the social and the environmental, the economic and the political are at the heart of everything he's been saying. Uh, when Richard Rogers, um, uh, the planner, the architect, was asked to do the Reith Lectures in 1995, he worked on it for two or three years, Anne Power then wrote the book with him called Cities for a Small Planet. I remember uh, Richard saying, how can we really understand uh, you know, what's going on out there? And it was that introduction uh, with Herbie, which completely shifted, I think, the whole focus of the discussion um, in the debate of certainly town planning and urban design. I think that is still very much the case. We had a conversation earlier about what is it that motivated um, Herbie to 
become so engaged in this uh, wider issue? Where does the connection from the social uh, and the environmental and the political actually come together? And it was interesting to hear that his study of anthropology here at the LSE was an important part of that because in studying cultural ecology, the notion of actually understanding connection between things, and in this case between cities and their sort of wider impacts at the social, at the political, at the community level was very much what shaped uh, the rest of your life in, in many ways, including uh, moving to Bristol, setting up a farm, uh, and uh, doing many of the wonderful things he's done there. He will be talking today about many of the ideas in this book. Um, some of them are warning signs, as I said at the beginning. Many of them are positive. They grow out of his um, proactive activism in supporting cities like the city of Bristol, where he's lived for so long or next to it, the city of Adelaide in Australia, but also looking at some uh, so-called solutions out there in China, in uh, other parts of the world, which I think you feel are really paper thin in Still terms are, of the yeah. issues that they're addressing. So we're in for a ride. I stress, despite the title, that I know that Herbie is an optimist, so don't get depressed, uh, <laughs> but listen to the warning signals. But join me in thanking Herbert Girardet for joining us at the LSE. Thank you. Very much. What I should have said is that Herbie will speak for about 40, 45 40, minutes, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then we have time for yeah, questions yeah. and discussion. Well, thank you, Ricky, for these very, very warm words of introduction. I really appreciate the tone of your introduction, because certainly, you know, I've the, I'm, I'm a, I was a student here of anthropology, as you said, and it was a very formative time. Social anthropology on the sixth floor in, in the main building, and in those days the LSE was not anything like it, is t like it is today. I mean, it was quite a small place in terms of the actual geography and the, and the size of the campus, which has grown massively. But in those days, it was much more a sort of, if you like, institution where improvisation of thought was taking place rather than the sort of consolidation of teaching that is now the kind of uh, calling card of the, of the London School of Economics. So when I was studying social anthropology here, I was really wanting to study uh, cultural anthropology as they teach in America, which is above all else concerned with the cultural development of tribal societies. Uh, whereas uh, social anthropology is primarily concerned, of course, with social relations within tribal societies. But I then branched out into a field called cultural ecology, which is really all about the relationships between culture and nature in the history of humanity. So certainly the history of cities is very much part of that story. We can only really understand the processes of urbanization that now so dominate the planet if we begin to look back in where all these relationships come from, the first villages in history, the first towns in history going back uh, 10,000 years ago. And so these are certainly formative experiences that I was involved in. And where's the uh, thing to advance the... Uh, yeah, oh, here it is. Have you got it? Have you got it? Yeah, so um, certainly the history of human settlements is 
fundamentally important in understanding the relationships between humanity and the global environment. Of course, in early days, until really the uh, late 18th century, cities were almost an add-on to agricultural societies. And typically, all over the world, until the late 18th century, about 5%, 10% of humanity was living in cities, whereas now, as we all know, and I'm sure some of you have been gone into that issue in some detail. We have about 50% of the world's population living in cities and going up very, very fast, particularly, of course, driven by developments in countries in Asia, uh, particularly in China in recent years. So it's an extraordinary transformation that has taken place on the face of this earth in these last uh, 200 years, but particularly in the last 50 years. Now, to start my talk, why would I show a picture like this uh, talking about an urbanizing world? Well, there's two reasons. One is, of course, this is the Three Gorges Dam in China, and that has been built in part to power a city, one of the largest urban conglomerations, Chongqing, uh, which is now about 35 million people in the wider urban area uh, of, of, of Chongqing, which is one of the major industrial cities of China. And by the way, that's one of the few cities in China you can hardly ever see from space, from satellites. Why? Because it is covered in, 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 in pollution. And so certainly, ironically, the Three Gorges Dam would help to reduce that pollution because it is producing electricity supposedly in a sustainable, non-carbon dioxide-related way. But the other reason why I chose this image is because, of course, the rush into cities is just unbelievable uh, you know, at this moment in time. I mean, uh, in the 1800, there was one city of a million people, which is the very city where we're here today, London, what about a million people, then growing to about 8.5 million people till the Second World War, start of the Second World War. Well, now, every day, about a million people are moving into cities on this planet. It is an absolutely extraordinary transformation that has taken place. So, these are the kind of key points I want to raise in my talk today. Global urban growth trends, and then certainly the question of the urban metabolism, which I've spent quite a bit of time working on, cities as input-output systems. And then I've got three concepts of the cities, which I'll be presenting here this evening. One is called Agropolis, which is a traditional city embedded in a countryside. Now we live in Petropolis, in my view, and Ultimately, as I will say at the end, we need to move to a new model of the city, in my view, called, which I call Ecopolis. So anyway, you can read these various points that I'll be making. So starting then with some statistics about urban growth that has taken place, it's just amazing what has happened, particularly since the Second World War. But of course, as I already indicated, this process of urban growth really started with the Industrial Revolution, because without massive input of fossil fuels into an urbanizing uh, world, it would have been impossible to have these trends that we are now seeing on the planet at this moment in time. So uh, we are expecting about 6.4, uh, 6.5 million people in 2050 to be living in cities. Currently it's about 3.6, 3.7 billion people, half, as I said, of the total human population. So what does this mean for the future of the planet? What does it mean for life in cities? These are the issues I would like to address today. So I'm starting then briefly to look at the traditional model of the city, uh, which I call Agropolis here. And this slide comes from the work of a 19th century German geographer called Heinrich von Thunen, who basically showed he wasn't just looking at the human settlement itself. He looked at the relationship between human settlements and the surrounding countryside. 
and particularly the farming systems around the city. So the nearest ring to the edge of the city is the market gardens, and then very quickly, the second ring, I'm not sure, yeah, this works here, the second ring is the town forest. Now, who would be able to, you know, consider that issue these days? I mean, okay, we have parks and forests in and around cities, but therefore recreation primarily, whereas in those days, until the uh, late 18th century, they were there basically for firewood and for building materials. Then, of course, beyond that, the various less and less intensive forms of cultivation and finally, the rough grazing at the edge of the city, maybe a mile or so away from the edge of this small town of 10 or 20,000 people maximum that this would represent. So there is a sort of logic of connectedness between the town and the countryside around it. And there was the critical issue of give and take between town and country, because unless the city, the town, gave back nutrients that it took in the form of food from the surrounding countryside, the land would go infertile. So I remember once when I was with the BBC filming in a German small town in Franconia called Dinkelsbühl, they still had cows being herded into the town every evening in order to be milked and then driven out of the town again uh, to, be, uh, to, to graze on, on farmland, on, on grazing land surrounding that city. So very interesting having this connection. And obviously the manure and also the human manure, the night soil, would have to be returned in order to re uh, plenish the farmland around the city uh, with the uh, crucial nutrients to keep farmland productive. And here's just a, a 17th century image of one German town called Aachen, where you can see this system in, in place. Uh, where, of course, this system worked particularly well in places where you didn't have major transport routes to bring uh, food from further distances, uh, such as rivers or canals or something like that. And here's just one quick look at a, a sort of one of the few surviving examples of a town that still has its ring walls around it. That assures the ring wall, in some ways, helps to assure the resilience of the city against outside incursions, attacks from, from marauding tribes or from, from uh, people who wanted the wealth of the city for themselves. So this is the kind of concept that we had everywhere, all over Europe and other parts of the world, to surround the city with a protective wall to assure the resilience of that city. In some ways, the current discussion on resilience of cities, which I'm sure some of you will have partaken in, is similar to this, shoring up the city against adverse effects from outside, and I'll come back to that. So here's just the kind of few types of systems on the edge of the city that are needed in order to keep the city going. Obviously, the food production, the timber, the firewood, but very important, obviously, historically, also wind power is a part of the energy input into the viability of the urban system, typically on the edge of the city, of course, rather than within the city or town itself. And there are just a couple of photographs I took a few years ago when I was filming in Shanghai. There were still, at that time, even within the city itself, farms like this where people... Uh, were growing crops for consumption in these nearby uh, apartment buildings. And they still, at that time, used night soil like this uh, as part of the way to assure that these cabbages would grow well. And they, you, as you can see, they were growing very well indeed. So that was the model of the city that we have inherited from the past, whereas I think we now need to look at where we are today, which is not Agropolis, but Petropolis, the city utterly dependent for its entire existence on fossil fuel imports on a daily basis, obviously for the internal transport system, for the pumping of liquids of all kinds, including sewage, 
basically pumping the sewage out to get, away from it, it, get it away from people sort of thing. But also, of course, the energy requirements for the food production systems that keep Petropolis going, and that can be often very, very far away, even halfway around the world, of course, and I'll come back to that. So a key component then, a characteristic of the modern city is dependence on massive inputs of fossil fuels, and here's just one quick look at the massive increase that has taken place, uh, obviously up to the Second World War, but you know, then really shooting up incredibly since the Second World War when we were able to tap into uh, oil, gas, and coal as never before. And that, by and large, for the benefit of an urban existence. So this is the kind of world that we've been making. I'm, I'm sure, again, some of you will have seen this amazing slide. It wasn't possible to either photograph this without having all these dots of light on the planet, but secondly, also without having satellites to take the pictures in the first instance. So just a few kind of key points then here about urban growth, uh, what human numbers growth, uh, urban growth. Then very importantly, <coughs> and this is a key point in my talk, the fourth one, which said in developing countries, as villagers move to the city, their capita resource consumption typically increases fourfold. Now this is a really critical point for both my talk, but also for the book, Creating Regenerative Cities, because unlike in developed countries like in Britain or Europe, as a whole, where typically urban consumption patterns, if anything, are more efficient than in rural areas where dispersed living causes reliance on, on, on transport, where dispersed uh, houses typically require uh, more heating than, than terraced houses. In developing countries, the process of urban growth leads to massive, massive increase in consumption of resources. And I'll come back to that in more detail. So cities on just 3 to 4% of the world's land surface use 80% of its resources today and discharge you know, similar quantities of liquids and solids and, 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 and other wastes of all kinds, uh, gaseous wastes. And here's another just a kind of key point about the age of the city that we now live in, which as cities define human existence in the 21st century, they are heartland of national economies, very, very important point, of course, because the interaction between people uh, is made easier by proximity within, within, within cities. And then a point that I, again, find very important in, in my thinking, at least, that in some ways we have a pre-Galilean mindset in our cities today. We take the city as the center of the universe, and we basically think that the ecosystems somewhere else on the planet are sort of appendices that somehow are of secondary importance. Well, I will challenge this point in my talk. And then the other point following on from that, in some ways we think that cities can almost declare independence from nature. And I think uh, very importantly then the last point also, that cities are subject to entropy. The second law of thermodynamics defines the way currently urban systems are run. In other words, wherever we burn fossil fuels, we end up with wastes that basically cannot be reconstituted in, in, into useful resources uh, without great difficulty. Anyway, see, these are key points I would like to make. Now, London was the great pioneer of urban growth, as I already indicated, starting in the uh, 19th century and moving rapidly then uh, into the 20th century. So from a million people in 1800 to uh, eight, eight and a half million people, as it is again today, 
London was a great pioneer, but of course relying then very much in, uh, on, on fossil fuel and other inputs of this kind. And I did a study on London about 20 years ago, trying to quantify London's inputs of resources, and you don't have to look at all these figures in detail, other than the fact that it is important to look at the performance of cities in input-output terms, because these are the waste outputs that come out the other end, and basically these are linear systems of input of natural resources, output of waste, and the question is what happens to those wastes in an urbanizing world. So a wonderful picture of London and a magnificent city full of cultural achievement, full of great museums, full, full of uh, wonderful uh, institutions of all kinds, including the LSE. But how can this city become much more resource efficient than it currently is, I think is one of the key questions. And I was able to make a documentary about London's metabolism for, 90, for Channel 4 about 15 years ago called Metropolis, a not very original title, but anyway, we just looked at input-output of resources and London's economy in that 45-minute uh, documentary. Uh, so another point linked to that then is what are the land surfaces that a city like London requires in order to keep it going in terms of food inputs, in terms of wood products, also areas required to sequester the carbon that comes out, the carbon emissions that come out of London. So I quantified it as about 125 times London's surface area. But a subsequent study by other people, because people found this was a bit of an extraordinary figure, London requiring nearly the entire productive land of, of England, they come up with nearly twice that figure, because I hadn't included a number of key factors. The food waste in, in restaurants in London, the, the enormous land surface required to produce pet foods, and also fishing uh, marine areas were not included in my figures. So one other subsequent study came up with needed 300 times London's, surf, uh, the, uh, London's own surface area would be required in order to keep this city going. So, but where do we get all that land from? Because it's clearly not available. London only has about 12% of the UK's population. So where is all this land? Of course, in America, in Canada, in, in, uh, in Australia, uh, in, in New Zealand, and so on and so forth. Anyway, so just moving on then to discuss not just the issue of ecological footprints of cities, but the urban footprint issue. And this is, of course, a major theme uh, that is being uh, discussed here at the Cities Institute that, at, at Ricky uh, and Philip uh, chair. So here's Atlanta, Georgia, an extraordinary land surface, an extraordinary landscape, of course, if you look at this sprawl entirely, of course, as a result of the development of car technology, that in turn re requiring massive inputs of, of uh, uh, gas from Texas and from elsewhere. And so urban sprawl of this kind really only occurred on, on this massive scale since the Second World War. You may know the story of how three companies, Firestone, Standard Oil, and uh, one other, and, and General Motors, between them bought up much of the public transport system in American cities in order to then push the development and the adoption of the motor car in the 50s and early six, uh, 40s and early 50s. An extraordinary historical fact that this urban sprawl partly resulted from that process of the closing down of public transport for the benefit of private transport systems such as this. Now, the reason I'm showing you this picture because it contrasts with another city of the same population numbers, which is Barcelona. Uh, it, Barcelona has about 26 times less surface area with the same population 
as, as Atlanta, Georgia. And then you see the red lines and you see all the public transport system that define a city such as Barcelona. So urban density, it is clearly very, very important. And of course, the researcher Ricky uh, and others here in, in, at the Bartlett and elsewhere are doing point to the importance of density as a way of pointing to the importance of resource and particularly fossil fuel efficiency. But even then, so here Barcelona with this reliance above all else on public transport systems, very, very exciting stuff. Of course, people here don't have access to green grass or gardens and anything, anything like the way they have in, in, in Atlanta. An important difference also in terms of how people ultimately perceive the world. Because so certainly this is a very urban culture, whereas in some ways you could say the culture of Atlanta is, you know, suburban, but not reliant on the land around houses for food production, but really above all else for enjoyment for families. But here's a very important point in this context, which is the per capita energy consumption that we have take for granted in somewhere like, well, in, in Europe today. Now, the man at the top, if he goes to the gym every day and really, you know, has a lot of muscles on his arms and the rest of his body will manage about 100 watt of energy output. I have a, uh, my, my grandson goes cycling a lot and he has a sort of watt meter on his bike and when he really cycles hard, he manages about 200 watt output from his muscles cycling uh, across the landscape. Well, we have about 6,000 watt per day energy consumption in Europe. So we have what people call 60 energy slaves working away for us on a daily basis, t 10 hours a day, 12, you know, uh, five days, six days a week. That is the energy requirement of modern urban living, even in places like Barcelona. In America and Atlanta, the figure is nearly twice as high, about 120 energy slaves per person. So all of that, of course, being fossil fuel input into, into urban life. So these are issues, I think, in the, in the context of climate change, we really need to take very, very seriously. So my concern is that Really, there's been a lot of discussion about the importance of urban morphology in, term, in terms of the, uh, the urban footprint, the land surfaces that cities take up and how they can be lessened through energy, uh, through density, and make, therefore create more efficiency, particularly in the context of transport. But in my view, we need to think beyond morphology towards the issue of the urban metabolism, which is the throughput of resources that uh, char characterize cities. And here... We need to look at the relationship between cities and ecosystems on far farmland, the oceans, and so on, in an urbanizing world, because an urbanizing world ultimately cannot exist without these inputs from, from elsewhere. So they come through pipes of this kind, through cables, uh, through transport systems. Now, I just want to show you just quickly what has been happening in, in, in somewhere like China. <coughs> China being the prime example of a, of a city, of, 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 a, of a country of absolutely astonishing urban growth, of course triggered uh, when Mao died and uh, Deng Xiaoping took over the, 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 the rule, you know, as ruler of, of, of China, he said, let us make it an industrial urban society. So this is the transformation of just one place in Shanghai. This is the same place just unbelievable transformation in just 20 years or so. Of course, all driven by the fact that China 
was signed up as the country that was to produce the consumer goods for, for the rest of the world, particularly Europe and America. So an extraordinary transformation then taking place on a bit of land in the heart of this city. Of course, that is directly linked then to you know, these processes, a massive container terminal, uh, you know, the energy inputs from power stations, the massive transport systems and so on that are connected with that. So this is just uh, directly, the economy of China is directly linked, of course, to its urbanization processes. And that, of course, really has to be clearly understood because it has implications. So it's not only trade between China and Chinese cities and factories in Chinese cities, but also, of course, the rising living standards in, this, in China itself. And in fairness to the Chinese, one has to say, hundreds of millions of people have been brought up from poverty in the process of urbanization and obviously industrial development. So that has to be emphasized. But there's a downside to it, which is this. The horrendous pollution problems associated with urbanization and inputs of fossil fuels and all manner of industrial processes that then have these kind of effects, uh, both health effects, uh, you know, the, the, the fish, and the, also very, very importantly, the impacts on farmland, which I'm not showing here, Something like a size of Belgium of farmland in China is now considered to be too polluted to produce food any longer. So these are, this is the downside. There was a recent study, public, study published on this. This is the downside of industrial stroke urban development that does not take into account these implications of, uh, of resource consumption and, and industrial processes and reliance on fossil fuels that is now taken for granted. So it's a huge challenge to deal with these issues. And as a result, then, also the ecological debt, which is a term that is now used increasingly by environmental analysts, the ecological debt of China to the rest of the world has grown, up, grown massively as a result of this urban, industrial, non-thinking, if you like, development, not taking care of the implications of the outputs of Chinese lifestyles and production systems on uh, ecosystems. Now, this is not a picture from China, but from India. But India, of course, this is the Dharavi slum in Bombay. But uh, India is obviously now, particularly under the current new government, going through similar processes. So what are the implications of all this for the rest of the world? And there here is the concept of the ecological footprint of cities. And it sh shows you how the habitat area at the top are really quite small compared with the areas that cities rely on in terms of their input of uh, particularly land-based resources, which are huge. And they go around the world. This is a picture of the Amazon, uh, intact Amazon. And I spent quite a bit of time there making documentaries in, in the late 80s, early 90s. And this is one of the pictures I took from a helicopter, the transformation of forest land into cattle ranches, into soya bean fields, uh, horrendous experience to see these fires, often the size of London or larger, why are they taking place? Why are they being said? Precisely because cities somewhere on the planet, not only cities, one has to say, but consumers somewhere on the planet will demand resources such as meat, such as soya beans for animal feed and so on, from distant places. And here's just a summary of the transformations. And on the bottom left-hand side here is, not, this is not the Amazon, but this, these are the... Uh, um, palm oil uh, plantations in Ma Malaysia, Indonesia that have been set up again to satisfy the demand for cooking oil, for cosmetics and so on in, in the burgeoning cities 
uh, in, in, in particularly in, in places like China. On the right-hand side bottom, this is, uh, I worked quite a bit in Saudi Arabia in recent years, where you had uh, a lot of development of farmland on the basis of fossil water, creating these irrigated fields, irrigated circles, in order to assure uh, food supply to a region that is otherwise basically a desert region. Well, that water is now largely finished, uh, and they are now buying into Ethiopia, dam, dam construction there in order to irrigate land into southern Sudan, into uh, parts of uh, uh, Argentina and so on, all ultimately to meet consumer demands uh, in, in, from people halfway across the planet. This picture I took uh, when I was in Singapore a couple of years ago, and this is not pollution from local power stations, but it is pollution from burning rainforests in Malaysia, where, where you know, rainforests were being converted into, into palm oil plantations. So just to kind of come close to the end of the depressing part of my talk, <laughs> uh, here's a couple of points, I'm afraid, about carbon dioxide and the whole issue of CO2 emissions from cities. And very importantly, currently the biosphere is only able to absorb about half the CO2 emissions coming from, uh, from, our, from our fossil fuel consumption patterns across the planet. And so the question is, uh, how can we help the planet to deal with our CO2 emissions on the one hand in terms of reforestation, in terms of storing carbon in soils by better farming systems, but also ultimately, of course, how can we reduce the uh, emissions from our urban lifestyles? How can we minimize the waste that comes out of our cities? And there are extraordinary uh, manifestations here of you know, throwing away computers every couple of years and so on that ultimately nature cannot cope with. Here, just one final rather depressing point. This is the sewage plume of the, just off the city of Rio de Janeiro, which I photographed a couple of years ago. And that's where the uh, rowers in the Olympics in Rio are supposed to be rowing, but they're already saying we're not going to do this because it's too polluted. We're not being able to, to go there and, and, and uh, you know, do our competitions there. So, and in fact, this is the area of dead zones in, in various um, uh, river estuaries, uh, such as here in the Mississippi, again, the combination of, of pesticides, of fertilizers, as well as sewage and other emissions, liquid emissions coming out of cities. And here's just a historical point that I would like to make, going back to London in the mid-19th century. When London was, 1858 was the year of the great stink. I don't know whether you, I mean, there's been a lot of reports about that. And so there are various people asked, to give advice on how to deal with all that sewage. And, uh, you know, in 1858, it all came to a head because the MPs and House of Parliaments were passing out because all that stink coming out of the Thames. So they thought, chaps, we've got to do something about this. And so they had advice from various people, including uh, Baselgett, who was then ultimately commissioned to build a sewage uh, disposal system, but also a German chemist called Liebig, Justus Liebig, who had been making a study of what plants contain in terms of the chemicals that make them grow. And he found that they contain three main chemicals, phosphates, nitrate, and potash. So he said, if we have an urbanizing Europe, we better make sure that as we consume food in our cities, those are to, must be returned to the farmland from where, where the, the food is grown. Well, London didn't follow that advice, but instead built a sewage disposal system, whereas Berlin 
followed the advice of Liebig and some of his uh, doctor colleagues, and they built a ring of uh, fields around the city uh, which they utilized for uh, returning nutrients from the sewage output of this, of this rapidly growing city in order to grow crops. And for until the late 60s, this system was in place. And there was a problem which was sewage containing not only nutrients but also chemicals and heavy metals. So that was when it, this system was closed down. But today, this issue is of critical importance because we're going to run out of phosphates if we're continuing with our current farming systems without cities giving back these key nutrients from their sewage systems uh, to farmland feeding cities. So there's a lot of work going on on how to make much more efficient water systems for cities such as here in Singapore. They've done impressive work on minimizing the, the waste of water and beginning to get to grips with how to capture the nutrients contained in sewage. So this is a very important issue. Now I'd like to just move on from there to looking at definitions of the city that have been in the debate about the future of cities in recent years. There's a lot of talk about the resilient city, city that has the capacity to absorb a range of disturbances and still retain its basic function and structure. And particularly, the Rockefeller Foundation recently published a book on this topic. And uh, Mrs. Rudin, who also gave a lecture here recently, has you know, written a very persuasive book about the importance of resilience of cities. But I had an argument with her at a recent conference because I argued we need to not just look at resilient cities, we need to look at a resilient planet. Because if we continue taking resources from nature without really taking care of how nature has revived through our activities, then ultimately a city cannot be resilient. We cannot put a sort of ring wall like they did in the Middle Ages around the city and hope that it ultimately will keep going without too much difficulty in the future. Then there's a lot of talk about the livable city, and that's about affordable housing, high quality of education, amenities, green spaces, minimal pollution, ease of movement, and so on. Very important, and in often it overlaps, but not always, with the regenerative or indeed the sustainable city, and I'll come back to those definitions later. So certainly, for instance, London in 52 had a great problem with uh, air pollution. You know, there was hundreds, thousands of people died one winter from coal burning, uh, from the emissions uh, of, of uh, households, also from transport emissions and so on. Thousands of people. So they said, we better do something about this. <clears throat> so they passed the Clean Air Act. And what happened? Uh, coal burning in London was largely outlawed. They, what they did instead then was to build power stations outside London, the uh, power stations on the Thames where the Tate Modern now is, or in, in Battersea were closed down, even though they were very efficient, built power stations in Didcot and elsewhere down the Thames, very tall chimneys. Okay, London became more livable, but the emissions, the waste gases ended up in Scandinavia, and the Scandinavians said, okay, what is doing to our lakes? We are wrecking, you are acidifying our lakes. So London became more livable because of less pollution, but it ultimately became less sustainable. So there is sometimes, for instance, in the case of cycling, there's a direct linkage and overlap between livability and sustainability, but in other cases there isn't. So I think it's important to get these definitions clear in our heads. The smart city, that's a very important discussion too because we have all sorts of opportunities now to use digital technology to improve the functions <coughs> of our cities, also the well-being and communication within cities is greatly improved in many ways through 
communication technology, and that's certainly a major discussion. And there's lots of companies like Google and Siemens and others that are trying to make our cities smarter. And then there's this, this issue of the sustainable city, which basically follows on from the Brundtland definition that city should meet the needs of the present without sacrificing the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Well, I argue that ultimately we need to think beyond sustainability. One problem with sustainability is that we haven't done much sustaining in the last 30 years since these terms were first used. We have run down massively the capacity of the planet uh, to look after, you know, to, to, to sustain itself, if you like. And we also have not started really regenerating damaged ecosystems around the planet. So I'd say that for the future of our cities and our current humanity, it is critically important to understand the laws of ecology. Everything is connected to everything else. There's only one ecosphere for all living organisms, and what affects one affects all. Secondly, everything must go somewhere. There's no waste in nature, and there's no way to which it can be thrown. Thirdly, nature knows best. That's what uh, Barry Commoner thinks. The absence of a particular substance from nature is often a sign that it is incompatible with the chemistry of life. Now, this is all about, of course, our chemical systems where we combine chemical materials that don't exist in that form in nature, particularly when it comes to plastics, which is basically a combination of, of uh, petrochemicals and, uh, and uh, sulfur, not sulfur, yeah. Is it sulfur? No, no, it's, uh, it's chlorine, chlorine. It's basically a combination, all, very, all types of plastics, and also pesticides by and large, are combinations of hydrocarbons and chlorine in ways that does not exist in nature. And finally, nothing comes from nothing. Exploitation of nature always carries ecological costs, and these costs are highly significant. So, now, where do we go from here? <laughs> and so this is where I argue we need to rethink the city, not just in, internal, in terms of its internal functioning, whether it's about density or suburbanization or whatever, and transport systems and efficiency of movement within cities, but we need to think ahead and look again at the relationship between cities and ecosystems. And here I'm arguing that we have major new opportunities, particularly when it comes to renewable energy technology. The reliance on fossil fuels as petropolis you know, is defined by it's no longer possible in an urbanizing world. We could get away with it with a few cities around the planet relying largely on fossil fuels. We cannot get away with it if everybody does that and we have 60 or 70 percent of the world's people living in cities relying on, on fossil fuel technology. So we need legislation, we need policy to help to speed up processes of renewable energy development and certainly we have seen quite a bit of this. Firstly in, 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 in Scandinavia, starting in, uh, in Denmark, where they introduced a policy called feed-in tariffs for renewable energy in the 70s, basically to make it cost-effective for people to invest in wind energy and then solar energy in order to make it a viable investment uh, for people with you know, the money in their pocket that they, that they wanted to spend. And at the same time to assure that this process of policy development for renewable energy would also speed up the development of environmental friendly uh, energy technologies at the same time. So just think, this is just another kind of point that I want to make is which 
you know, there's been a lot of talk about the importance of urban ecology, but is primarily concerned with processes within cities themselves, uh, the relationship of living organisms with each other in an urban environment. And my argument in the second two point is really we need to think beyond the edge of the city and look at the collective impacts of urban populations on environments beyond city limits and to find ways and means of creating a mutually beneficial regenerative relationship between urban populations and ecosystems. So I've been doing quite a bit of work on the kind of concept of the urban metabolism, emphasizing that we are really in our, well, the way we run our cities at the present time is basically linear processes, taking resources from nature and never mind where they end up. And whereas nature functions as a circular system, all wastes in nature become inputs into new growth, the falling leaves of trees, you know, all the organic waste outputs of cities, of, of, of nature and forests and, and coral reefs and so on are basically inputs into future life. And so certainly, in my view, for urban planning, these issues need to be taken on board very, very seriously indeed. That also means, of course, energy efficiency. And this is just a, a, a picture showing the progress that's been made in terms of making buildings more efficient. When we started with fiberglass, which takes a lot of space, 30 centimeters of that stuff, makes a house largely carbon neutral. That doesn't, space is not always available. Then various more efficient technologies were developed. But now we are moving ahead towards a new type of insulation material called vacuum insulation panels, which are now being developed and actually promoted, and, you know, which originally came from air aircraft technology, from fridges and freezers that have not very thick walls but need to be make sure that they are highly energy efficient. So we can begin to really retrofit our buildings in new ways. And this is just one step in the right direction in terms of energy efficiency in our cities, quite apart from the energy efficiency of transport systems and so on. But moving on from that, certainly the, the critical issue is how can we make sure that our cities rely on renewable energy technology rather than on fossil fuel inputs? And here you see... <coughs> what has happened with wind power technology, partly as a result of feed-in tariffs as developed in Denmark initially, where the, Im the increase has been absolutely massive in the size of these things. Not everybody likes them necessarily, but uh, nevertheless, if you get people to have a share in wind power development, then the nimbyism, the reaction against uh, this kind of development will be less, and I'll come back to that in a minute. So various offshore technologies are being developed and London, you may not have noticed this or read about this, but London actually in the Thames Estuary, and it was partly initiated by Ken Livingston, uh, was a major, Nicky Gavron, a major wind farm development has taken place in the Thames Estuary where about 175 turbines now turn and produce electricity and about 20% or so of London domestic electricity consumption actually comes from wind power now. So this is something that hasn't been reported very much, but and this is the largest wind farm in the world that was built a couple of years ago with uh, uh, foreign, foreign money mainly and foreign technology. But nevertheless, it's there, and it's really making a significant contribution <coughs> to London's or the electricity supply to the southeast of England. Ma amazing developments in, in solar technology, uh, solar farms, solar stadia, uh, solar housing developments like here in, in Freiburg in Germany or here in China. All of this needs to be mainstreamed rather than be unusual and exceptional types of 
renewable energy development. And of course, some of you may ask, okay, the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow, but there's really remarkable developments now taking place with energy storage technologies, air pressure storage, battery storage, uh, water-based uh, storage systems. There's a lot happening in this field, and particularly as one thinks about Europe rather than just about Britain, it is perfectly possible to link, as is already happening anyway, link across Europe where the, if the sun shines in Italy but the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine in, in Britain, you can have cables connecting, as already is the case, across Europe to assure continuous energy supply. And particularly in countries like Germany, which has adopted feed-in tariffs uh, under the Schroeder government uh, 15 years ago, it's been remarkable to see there's about 100 renewable energy regions that are aiming for the region, the villages in, 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 in the various parts of the country to become, and the farmers to become major suppliers of renewable energy to towns nearby. So these are really significant developments. And here's one in Britain near Swindon. All these people standing here in front of this solar farm are shareholders in this farm and in these wind turbines. And this is where it becomes viable because it becomes socially viable because people participate financially in these kind of developments. So this is of real significance. In Britain, more often than not, the NIMBYism has been directed against imposition of wind farms or solar fields on local people, uh, on local villages, whereas here, with participation of people, financially, they have a financial benefit from these developments. Uh, methane power is another important part of this development, uh, the enormous quantities of uh, organic waste accumulating in cities, how they can be turned both into fertilizers as well as into biogas. And here's a quite a, amusing picture from Bristol, where Wessex water is partly stirred, if that's the right term, by Jonathan Porritt and others, have decided they're ready to do everything they possibly can to turn the poo of the people of Bristol into, into, into gas. And uh, so the first buses are running around Bristol now, powered by biogas from, from number two, you know. And <laughs> so these are, you know, we often poo-poo these kind of ideas. <laughs> but they are quite important, actually. And they're also very important because when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, the biogas certainly carries on being produced. So that's another, <laughs> yeah, it's true, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, so this is a bus you can go around Bristol in this bus now, and they're very proud of it, by the way. Bristol, you may not know, is European green capital this year, driven by the mayor, George Ferguson, and a lot of people in the city, and they're really trying to become the sort of key implementers of ideas of regenerative urban development in this country and then helping to set the scene on the debate across this country. Of course, uh, electric cars, and there's a lot of people in America now. Even we've been hearing rumors that Apple is now investing in solar electric cars. Uh, we know that Tesla is, here's BMW doing it, electric bikes. I mean, there's really a tremendous amount happening with big money, particularly from the uh, dot-com uh, people of this planet who are all, or many of them, saying this is the new sector, the new green economy sector that can really make the money but at the same time do good and, uh, in, the, in the process. Important point is also urban agriculture. As I said earlier on, we take for granted food supply from halfway around the planet. 
Well, urban agriculture is thriving all over the world now, not only in developing countries like here in Kenya, but also in New York buildings, uh, rooftops in New York. Are now there's a lot of urban farming going on. One has to say, obviously, when it comes to total food supply to city, the urban area would not be anywhere near enough to supply both the vegetables and the fruit and also the grain of cities. But nevertheless, we can do an awful lot uh, within the cities themselves and, and on peri-urban areas on the edge of cities. The best example of intra-urban agriculture is actually Havana, Cuba, where as a result of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 89, suddenly there was a major crisis of food supply, so they said we better do something about using the waste spaces within the city. And there's about 20,000 hectares within uh, Havana now being used for urban farming in remarkable ways, basically organic farming. And it was actually initiated by a Chinese Cuban who said to Fidel, Fidel, listen, have a look at my back garden. You know, this is what I'm doing in my back garden, growing crops on raised beds. And by the way, I'm growing Chinese vegetables here too. So there are now cookery classes associated with these urban farms where people, Cubans are learning Chinese stir-fry and that kind of stuff. You know, it's quite funny. Uh, obviously, going, going upwards as well, growing food vertically is a major move underway now, even with supermarkets beginning to realize that there's potential to use rooftops in supermarkets, multi-story cultivation, for, for growing salads to be sold in the supermarket itself. So stuff like that is happening in various places. Now, I'm coming to the end of my talk, and I just want to give you a case study of an urban transformation process that I was very honored to be involved in when I was asked to be a thinker in residence in Adelaide in 2003. The Premier of South Australia was getting concerned about loss of water from the nearby Murray River, and that triggered a discussion uh, about the sustainability or the viability of Adelaide as an urban system. So he said, let us look at, the, let's do an analysis of the use of resources within the city and how that could be turned from linear to circular. And so that process got underway, and there was a very intensive nine-week period uh, when I was asked to produce a plan for Adelaide, which I have to pleased to say was largely implemented as a result. And here are some of the sort of things that have happened there. Uh, the world's first solar-powered bus, pass, but powered, of course, not from the rooftop of the bus, but from these roofs here of the bus station and also of the central market, the solar villages, massive development of wind power on the edge of the city. And very importantly, looking at circularity, use of resources from moving from linear disposal-based systems to circular systems. And the important point in this context is that we need to differentiate between circular use of organic materials, which are relatively easy, is relatively easy to do, and the much more difficult process of turning technical materials back into uh, new resources for future production. So in practical terms here, you see how plastics can be turned into park benches, and that's certainly a major production facility that was started in Adelaide. We use an awful lot of fence posts. We need benches, we need all, you know, tables, outdoor tables and so on. Why not use recycled plastics to do that rather than allowing those plastics to end up in the ocean as they do more often than not at this moment in time? It's a terrible story. But then, very importantly, the organic waste, and that had there was practically a zero organic waste recycling in Adelaide. And I'm pleased to say there's now 180,000 tons of uh, 
compost produced from organic waste in the city. That is then combined with uh, recycled sewage from, from within Adelaide. That is turned into market gardens and they have the most wonderful food production system largely based on organic recycled materials from within the city itself. And this is the central market in Adelaide which has the most delicious variety of fruit. So certainly, you know, this is one example of a city that really took this issue seriously, driven by the Premier of South Australia, Mike Grant, at the time, and the transformation has been remarkable. Also, very importantly, reforestation, carbon sequestration. Adelaide, as a city region, also very suburban like Atlanta, has a lot of commuting going on, a lot of CO2 emissions, so... How can a lot more of that be absorbed by tree planting? So some 3 million trees have been planted in Adelaide in the last 15 years, 14 years. It's been a really remarkable success story. Unfortunately, one has to say, recently there were major fires in the Adelaide Hills, partly as a result of climate change. So, you know, reforestation does not always result in final outcomes. So here, just a kind of summary of the kind of transformation process that cities not just Adelaide, but I mean, uh, Copenhagen. And I know Philip Rode has done a study of, of Copenhagen as a city that has really implemented all these ideas in some rather remarkable way, renewable energy production from, renew from renewables. In the case of Adelaide, loads and loads of solar buildings now on everybody's households. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, a quarter of all households now have solar roofs, solar hot water systems, not just PV, but also solar water tree planting and all these other points here, loads of compost being produced. And the key reason why the Adelaide, the government of South Australia was interested in this was because I was able to argue this would be excellent for the economy of the region. Uh, South Australia has got 1.3 uh, 1 million people, most of them living in Greater Adelaide, and thousands of new jobs have been created by bringing a lot of the energy production back home into the area burning less fossil fuels, doing solar development, plumbers, electricians, people composting, urban agriculture, all of these things put together can help to create a new, viable, and regenerative urban economy. And just a couple of other points which I've described in, in my book here. This is the Yellow River in China. And China, you know, the, the, I told you some horror stories earlier on, but there's also some positive developments in China as well. I mean, a lot of wind power, a lot of solar in China, but also interesting reforestation on a very large scale. Here's the Yellow River. It's yellow. Well, it's orange, actually. But, um, and here's a dam that was every year filling up with silt. So they have to flush out the dam every year you know, in order to get rid of the silt within the, uh, within the reservoir. But now they started, Lanzhou, but also the Chinese government, also the World Bank, and they've turned the headwaters of the, young, uh, of the Yellow River around in this way. Look at this amazing transformation of a landscape. Partly to reduce the uh, silting of the river and partly to resuscitate landscape that were just eroding year after year after year. And that has created new livelihoods for local people up in, in these upland regions. So these are national policies, these are city policies, but they're also policies uh, at, the, at the international level where financial streams have to head in this direction and assure that reforestation, renewable energy, energy efficiency, and, renewable energy, uh, and, and regenerative technologies of all kinds really become mainstream rather than an add-on extra 
to where we currently do things. Here's a little example from London that I think is quite interesting. You know about Crossrail probably. Everybody reads about Crossrail. It's in the papers every few weeks. And so it, help, it will help with internal communication. But what happens with all the soil that comes out of Crossrail? Well, it is shipped to, uh, to, to Suffolk and it's ended, ends up building a new uh, wildlife reserve for, 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 wild, for birds on, on the Suffolk coastline. Well, is it Suffolk or is it Essex, Wallasey? Anybody know that? I think it's Suffolk. Anyway, it's happening and it's on a, Do you know? Essex? Essex? Okay, it's Essex, not Suffolk, sorry. So, you know, all this soil could end up being dumped somewhere uselessly, but instead it's being turned into a wildlife reserve on the, on the, on the Essex coast. And this is really kind of the part of the story of regenerative urban development, that we look at the linkages between the city and the wider environment uh, that the city relates to. So just to finish then, criteria for regenerative urban development. And I argue that sustainable development as a concept has been too passive. Not enough has happened about it uh, since the 80s. We need to do much more to not just sustain but to regenerate living systems that cities ultimately depend on. An environmentally enhancing restorative relationship between cities and natural systems. The, the mainstreaming of efficient renewable energy systems for human settlements across the world and also new lifestyle choices and economic opportunities which arise from this and will, which in, will encourage people to participate in these transformation processes. So, just to finally finish then, uh, The Triumph of the City. There's an important book published a couple of years ago by Edward Glazer who works in New York. And he says, of course, quite rightly, cities are beacons of cultural excellence. They really are. We have amazing things going on in cities as a result of the interaction, creativity of people within urban environments. And ideas spread more easily in denser places, and density gives cities an advantage over dispersed places. And certainly London is a prime example of that. Cities magnify people's talents by stimulating interaction and innovation. Cities do not make people poor. They attract poor people. Urbanization increases living standards. No denying that either. But very importantly, as I keep emphasizing, in developed countries, urban living can also be more resource efficient than in dispersed rural living. But the tragedy, if one wants to use that term, the urban pyramid of inequality harbors the potential for great social instability as we keep seeing in urban riots that keep happening in, in different parts particularly in Europe and America, but in Britain we had major examples of this not so long ago. As people become urban develop dwellers in developing countries, their capita, per capita resource consumption and environmental impacts typically increase fourfold. And this is certainly a key issue that is being left out, in my view, of the urban debate. Linear urban resource consumption patterns interfere with circular natural systems. And then the last two points, the ecological footprints and pollution impacts of an urban growth of urban growth are reaching staggering global proportions. And that has to be remedied head on with urban policies, with national policies, and with international UN-based type of initiatives. The current practice of urban resource use are undermining the very future of cities themselves. And here's just one slide about climate change. We are now at 400 parts per million carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere. There's a movement started in America 
that we have to reduce that figure rather than allow it to go up further if we want to avoid more than two degree increase in the atmospheric temperatures. Well, it's a meritorial order to try and actually reduce this, but all the examples that I've given, particularly <coughs> forestation, energy efficiency, renewables, could contribute to that process. And this is from Curitiba in Brazil, where public displays tell people how their recycling, how their energy efficiency activities are contributing to reduced pollution and increased uh, uh, efficiency in the use of resources. So we need public displays of this kind throughout our cities in order to assure that people actually participate and are aware of their contribution in a daily basis to, to these outcomes. And one more slide. Any know, anybody know what this is? It's the World Wide Web. So obviously we have the interaction of people with smart cities within you know, the urban digital technologies that have a great contribution to make to uh, interaction within cities. But we need, above all else, strengthening the international connectivity between cities and decision makers to assure that ultimately our globalized world also becomes a world where the best ideas on the future of this urbanizing world are spread and implemented. And so that also ultimately certainly also means a much more reduced, much reduced ecological <laughs> footprint, closer by food production systems, reduced energy uh, used through uh, efficiency and uh, better use of renewable energy as a key component of an urban future. We have seen waves of innovation in the world, starting with water power, steam power, electricity development, in the petrochemicals revolution uh, in the 50s, the digital networks revolution that we've seen in the last decades. But we need ultimately a sixth wave of, uh, of innovation. It's called here sustainability. I would say it needs to go beyond that. Re resource productivity, whole systems design, biomimicry, green chemistry, industrial ecology, renewable energy, green nanotechnology, as it's called here. This is not my slide. Anyway, so we have a major challenge on our heads in this urbanizing world, and I think we better get on with it. Thank you. Well, if everyone speaks at the speed and says as much as you say in 50 minutes, we are going to get on with it. Um, um, we'll come to questions, but as chair, and being from the London School of Economics and Political Science, there are two issues which I think it would be interesting to hear you reflect on. Governance and money. Yeah. Which were, um, I mean, the, the governance issue you keep on and you kept on rightly sort of getting at. I mean, the, yeah. the key fundamental point you're making is that the problems of cities can only be solved by looking outside them, and the impact of cities, the negative impacts, are also outside them. The governance structures we tend to have yeah. are uh, obviously not flexible. So what is your, um, what have you learned? Where do you see uh, governance systems that are able to basically deal with these problems, or are they not there? No, they're starting to develop in various places. I mean, I've referred to one policy above all else, which is feed-in tariffs for renewable energy, which were adopted in Britain also under 
under Gordon Brown and certainly helped to trigger a development of, of solar and wind power in this country uh, remarkably, even though obviously the total figures are still relatively low compared with uh, much of the rest of Europe, particularly Scandinavia well, and Germany. That's the Prime Germany. Minister making that decision. Uh, that was, no, that, it was driven, driven by lobbying by environmental groups. Right. Uh, like Friends of the Earth, like Greenpeace, like the World Future Council, and a few other organizations that basically persuaded Ed Miliband and then Gordon Brown that it made sense for Britain as a country to get serious about renewable energy development, even though renewable energy was more expensive than conventional. But that by introducing it, it would contrib contrib cont contribute to the cost reduction process and therefore ultimately would be of benefit, not only in terms of the autarky of this country, if you like, in terms of uh, reduced reliance on imported fossil fuels, but also uh, ultimately uh, have a much longer term uh, opportunity for, you know, really gets, getting serious about a whole new renewable energy uh, economy. So, but the other policy that I haven't mentioned is, uh, is the, land, the landfill taxes, which come from Europe primarily, which in the uh, 80s, 90s, there was hardly any recycling at all in, in this country, and that certainly has changed significantly. It's not all been wonderful, but every year the cost of deposing of urban waste goes up as a result of European-driven policy, uh, and that certainly is triggering you know, a significant developments in innovation and recycling technology and all this kind of stuff. Then certainly, you know, we are seeing, uh, obviously, new uh, developments in, in energy efficiency, partly driven by policy in Germany, but also in Britain. There was significant initiatives on, you know, you, you keep getting phone calls regularly, somebody saying, can I insulate your loft? It will be done free of charge and stuff like that. That's, again, policy driven. So these kind of examples, you know, are, are really very impressive, but uh, certainly not enough. I mean, I gave the example of, Australia, South Australia, where all these breakthroughs came directly as a result of governance by the then Premier and his uh, uh, department, of, you know, of uh, South, government department of South Australia, also to inject funds into these processes. I mean, certainly the question of financial instruments is a critical one. And so clearly the financial benefits of reduced resource consumption need to be Clearly illustrated. But I think, in a way, you're saying the mayor is not enough. Absolutely. Right, okay. That's. Sorry. I think that's yeah. an issue. We okay. Money. You didn't talk about the cost of all of this and, and public acceptability of uh, and appetite for investing, what yeah. is undoubtedly in some cases more than uh, the budgets are available yeah. uh, in doing that. What, what's your reflection on that? Well, I mean, when it comes to feed tariffs, it's an interesting story. As a, in, in Germany, as a result of the increase in. in, in uh, use of wind and solar, uh, about five years ago, the cost per household was about six or seven euros per, per month. It's gone up to about 18 euros per month uh, uh, for the typical German household. So that's quite a substantial figure, but at the same time, because of energy efficiency policies in households, it has also reduced the energy use in the country and is allowing the country to move actively towards uh, reduced reliance both on, on, uh, on fossil fuel generation as well as on, on, uh, uh, on, uh, uh, on uh, nuclear power as well. But, I mean, certainly beyond that, I mean, there are many other considerations. I mean, the externalities of our current urban lifestyles are never put into the accountancy systems that we, that, that we, that we favor. The fact is, you know, there was a study in Germany some years ago showing that the typical environmental costs that are not factored in 
to the uh, bills that people pay, about 12% of, of GDP. Mm -hmm. So they're unpaid bills. We are leaving mm -hmm. for future generations to pay. And this is uh, eroded soils, this is deforestation, this is changes in the atmosphere. So certainly, you know, the, the financial incentives to look ahead to the future are beginning to be taken very seriously in the environmental debate. Uh, Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and all the others, IUCN, WWF, are all pushing this agenda. But it hasn't fil filtered through yet. I mean, your department certainly being funded partly by Deutsche Bank, I think, b benefits from the consideration of, of, of that bank to take environmental finance and, and the benefits to economies of cities by more prudent financial systems, much more serious than it may have been a decade ago or so. Right. Well, I'm glad you didn't take that to another part of uh, the discussion, which normally <laughs> happens at the LSE. But anyway, uh, maybe sh are you happy to take two or three questions oh, no, at no, the same no, time? Oh, no, no, I'm not. One at a time. No, no, no. no I'm joking, of course. No, no, yeah. do you prefer two or three no, questions no, no, in one go? Yeah, sure, okay. sure, yeah. So, gentlemen, uh, right there, can you, no, no, behind you, behind you, yeah. Can you say who you are and questions and not long statements? Hi, I'm uh, Ken Rumpf. I'm a financial analyst in renewable energy. <clears throat> Uh, my question was about your point about the increased resource consumption of city dwellers in developing countries, yeah. uh, which I was surprised. To me, aren't you comparing perhaps, say, someone living in rural China moves to Shanghai, lives in that tower block, but yeah. has air conditioning and TVs and yeah, yeah. fridges? Isn't that partly development, not urbanization? Okay, well, no, go ahead and answer yeah. that. Yeah, go ahead and answer that. Well, urbanization and development go hand in hand, don't they? So, I mean, certainly uh, the question is whether that type of urban development is inevitable. I mean, I that wasn't me. Okay. Uh, I, wa what is it? Uh, I was involved in a project in China called Dongtan Eco City, which it was an eco city project on, the, uh, on an island just off Shanghai near Pudong. And basically what we tried to do there in this project, which was initiated by the government of Shanghai, was to say, is it possible to enable somebody who comes from a village to move into a city without a significant increase in their resource consumption? And so this was a project partly uh, 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 implemented by, by Arab and, and one of your students, actually. Arab is an engineering firm. Yeah, Arab, the engineering firm, and Alessandro Gutierrez, uh, who was one of your students, and we designed an urban layout, an urban consumption pattern system, uh, which basically had, was a circular system where there was an agricultural belt around the city, which was part of the urban development. And it certainly allowed, would have allowed if that had been fully implemented. It has been partially implemented since then. Uh, a reduced uh, poverty, if you like, of, of people coming from villages, but at the same time benefiting from a higher standard of living. But, you know, using circularity of, of, of resource use and minimizing waste as a key part of it. There was obviously renewable energy as a major part of that project. So certainly the question is, do we have to have, I mean, I would say, say again, development and urbanization currently virtually are almost considered as almost identical processes. But I would argue that a, a different kind of development uh, which, on the one hand, raises people out of poverty, but on the other hand, minimizes the impact of the development. That is clearly where we need to look now. And so certainly in your work with renewable energy, I would have thought that is a key component of that. I think so. There may be some other questions on that. There's a, right at the back. Yeah. Can you stand up? Tell yeah. us who you are, please. 
Thank you. Um, Sean Fernando from the uh, urbanization team at PwC. Um, I think your talk and your work in this area is really important and timely and necessary and you've given us uh, a lot of issues to think about and I'm sure others in, I'm sure others in the audience will pick up. Can change the microphone, please? If that's the problem, can you turn that one off? Literally throw it away? Oh, no. <laughs> that's not very efficient, is it? Yeah, sorry, okay. How's this? Is it better? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, as a comment, just to say thank you. Um, but also, uh, you mentioned that cities behave in a way that can be described by the second law of thermodynamics, and I wonder what your urban interpretation is of thermodynamic equilibrium. Is there an equilibrium point, and what does that look like for cities in terms of their size, function, and the resource needs with the natural environment and, and rural areas? Well, I think you need to write a PhD thesis on that. I mean, it is, it is certainly uh, an area that's only just being explored. I mean, if you Google uh, cities and entropy, you will find very little on that topic. But the fact is that, you know, the fossil fuel dependence of, of cities, and therefore the, the way in which the second earth dynamic causes, you know, cities to perform in a highly unsustainable way is, of course, is the starting point in this discussion. I mean, we burn fossil fuels as though it's no tomorrow. We turn, uh, you know, the, the fire of fossil fuels into, into, into heat, which is dispersed and which can never be recaptured. So that is certainly a key component in, in urban development at this moment in time. Uh, of course, when you dilute the, the kind of precise definition of entropy, the whole issue of waste coming out of cities is part of an entropy process, and certainly unless we get serious about circularizing the resource use in our cities and completely... Uh, well, I mean, what to say new ways, but I mean, you know, really advanced ways of above and beyond what, what is current practice, we will simply further accelerate the, the running down of, of the living systems of Next the planet. You. Uh, thank you. Uh, Etienne von Bertra from the Development Planning Unit. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. I was surprised by one mention of inequality. What? Inequality. One mention of inequality, yeah. which is, I think, is another tragedy of yeah, contemporary yeah, yeah, world, uh, yeah. no mention of injustice. Yeah. We are full of them. And I, I, to me, the, the, the lack, I'm interested in truly in there's no reflection on global capitalism itself. So can we just continue with the economic system as it is? Yeah. The Chinese cities that you were referring to is not only the decision of those cities, it's global corporations deciding to produce there. Yeah. So to me, there is an, a political element here, as yeah, if okay. we live in a very symmetric p world yeah. of power. And yeah. uh, so what's your views on that? Thank well, you. thank you for that point, because I'm, I'm glad you actually raised this, because certainly, I mean, I have emphasized the environmental aspects of urban development because it is a very, very underexposed issue. There's a load of discussions going on on the issue of equality or inequality and, and you know, the skewed... Uh, uh, distribution of wealth in cities, and I, I agree with you entirely. This is, you know, that's, that's only mentioned in one bullet point that I made, but I mean, certainly think this is an absolutely critical issue. On the second point, uh, I, would, I, I describe in, in this book, Re Regenerative Cities, you know, that we are looking at actually neoliberal cities. I mean, the, the process of urbanization as manifested in somewhere like China is driven directly as a result of global... Uh, uh, trading systems which ultimately benefit from uh, cheap labor in, in, in Asia. I mean, it's not just China, but, I mean, we're looking at 
obviously examples in, in Bangladesh, in India, and in, increasingly in parts of Africa where people locate or Laos, Cambodia, where factories are located in order to benefit from uh, cheap labor and therefore have massive profits from uh, particularly clothes but many other products of all kinds that we take for granted in our daily lives. So I'm glad you raised that point and I would certainly think that this is a critical point to be discussed but I just, as I said at the moment, uh, a moment ago, is, you know, the environmental impacts of urbanization are so underexposed that we really, that's why I've tried to fill a gap actually in the discussion and therefore emphasize that point strongly and I would certainly, in the discussion on uh, on sustainable development, you know, the issue of social sustainability always comes first, uh, the economic sustainability, and finally, you know, as an add-on extra, environmental sustainability has become the practice in recent years. I think, personally, we really need to reverse that order and start, you know, what, what legacy are we leaving future generations if we carry on wrecking the planet and I would, Ricky will probably disagree with me, as a result of the types of urbanization that are currently being practiced. That's the question I, I think we urgently need answers to. No, I wouldn't disagree with that. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes, thanks. I'm Marco Poletto, and I'm an architect and urban designer. Uh, I just want to connect back to something we started to talk before, uh, the sort of financing aspects, although it's not really my field, but I've been quite interested uh, recently from this uh, divestment movement. Uh, maybe you were aware of the case of Harvard, which uh, was like on, 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 the, on the newspaper recently, uh, where case? alumni were beginning but to Harvard. put pressure on the institution itself to divest from fossil fuels. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. so uh, suddenly I thought maybe this is actually quite interesting situation mm. because we're talking about uh, a prominent institution and like Harvard, yeah, other yeah, cases yeah, are coming yeah. up in which substantially large amount of money that were invested in fossil fuels can be now uh, uh, pushed somewhere else and perhaps question? in some of these now the question is whether you actually see this as, a, as actually a, a, a potential movement, a potential transition that yeah. can really support this new kind of development that you were, you were showing, particularly yeah. like small-scale distributed uh, uh, projects. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot happening. In fact, it's very interesting to look at the debate on this. I don't know whether you know the name Jeremy Leggett, who is uh, one of the sort of major figures in the solar development, renewable energy development in, in this country, and he's also a fossil fuel analyst. And, and he keeps pushing, you know, telling people, stop investing in fossil fuels because it's not going to be profitable much longer. Firstly, because the externalities are going to increasingly be factored into, in, in, into the overall uh, financial picture. But secondly, also because the largest investment in terms of growth in recent years has actually been in renewable energy. And it's, you know, the, there's been ups and downs in the share price of renewable energy companies, but by and large, it's a long-term investment. The other interesting factor in this context is what's happening with oil prices right now. Uh, you know, a lot of oil is produced at the cost of 70 80 $90 a barrel, whether you look at shale oil or offshore oil or, or uh, uh, you know, the fracking, you know, oil and gas. It's all very expensive. The Saudis have driven, driven the price down partly in order to make those companies, uh, it's a complex story, but uh, unprofitable at this moment. Sorry? Like Carl Sands, Roger, Deepland, very polluted, but many have been called out. For the moment. 
So we have to, for once, we have to thank the Saudis for something. Not very often, <laughs> I think, but, but this time I think they have uh, doing us a favor because, uh, in fact, some people are going to be very, very unhappy if, if Norsi oil is also about $60 or $70 a barrel to produce. And there will be uh, bankruptcies before long in, in, in the city of London of, of oil companies that are relying on, on, on uh, offshore oil. So, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. There's certainly been ups and downs, as I said already, in the price, share price of, of renewable energy companies. But ultimately, the long-term trend, without a doubt, can only be uh, with ever greater uh, increases in, in the use of those technologies and ultimately the viability and investment in those. So certainly... I know the Church of England is having second thoughts about being invested in, in BP, and I don't know about the LSE, whether you have shares in oil. Have you got shares in oil and gas? <laughs> Do you know? Next question. <laughs> uh, I'm very aware of the gender imbalance. <laughs> so, Hi, uh, my name question. is Jimmy Greer. I'm a sustainability consultant. Um, I had a question about water in Sao Paulo and uh, how it's running out now. And yeah. um, it seems in Sao Paulo that... It's about efficiency, or lack of efficiency, lack of rain there, yeah. mismanagement, and not so much in people's minds linked with uh, deforestation. Large-scale hydro is going on at uh, you know, full clip. Um, how do you make that link better in everyone's minds in the cities and, you know, I guess, the wider yeah. consciousness? Thank you. Well, San Paulo is lucky in some ways because it is surrounded by small and medium-sized reservoirs, and it also draws on, of course, the much larger reservoirs further away from the city. But it's actually, I'm glad you raised this point because it hasn't been in the news very much, but there's a real serious water shortage, in particularly in San Paulo in the last few months. Also, Rio is affected as well. And a good friend of mine who's been looking at studying the Amazon uh, and has been saying, warning for years, somebody called Alexandra Nobre, a Brazilian ecologist and economist, he's been saying, if you have continuing deforestation on the scale that has been happening in the Amazon, you will have changes in rainfall pattern, uh, reduced rainfall as a result directly of changes in, in, in the terrestrial environment. So uh, he was interviewed on Al Jazeera recently making the point that the water shortages that are now seriously affecting uh, reservoirs in, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in around Sao Paulo will be directly, has to be directly linked uh, with deforestation further afield in the, in the Amazon. So this question of how large cities can grow to be viable, uh, given the fact that they rely on resources, particularly water resources from somewhere, needs to be discussed. I mean, another one is, is uh, Los Angeles and the Colorado River. I was at, you know, Rehuva Dams not so long ago, and they are down by about two-thirds. The Colorado River and, and the uh, Rockies have really suffered from lack of rainfall. So, you know, if... There's already a major discussion now in you know, increasing the energy, water, sorry, water efficiency of Los Angeles and, and other Californian cities. But I mean, you know, the reliance on cities, of cities on these uh, aquatic and other terrestrial resources are, is critical. New York, by the way, has been very forward and positive in, in assuring that the Catskills, which they rely for for water supply, have been not only maintained but reforested. And so much of the water supply to New York comes from very sustainable or even regenerative uh, 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 forest systems. Just let me take, again, I want to go back to the governance issue. How does something like that happen? Which is, yeah. there's a mayor, yeah. which is responsible for a tiny area. Yeah, yeah. This decision to do with the delicate balance of the ecosystem, yeah, which yeah. stretches way beyond 
What mechanisms make that work, and in some cases not make that work? Is, is it just an awareness? Is it political authority at the level of the state? How, how does that happen? You know. Yeah, so well, I don't necessarily know, but I mean, I, I mean, for instance, in Bristol, where I'm doing quite a bit of work with, with the mayor of Bristol, George Ferguson, they're going to organize a conference next autumn of mayors, not just of British mayors, but basically to have a collective voice of mayors to say, we need national and international UN policies to change the way we look at the dependence or reduce the, you know, the unre unreliable supply of resources from nature. We need re reforestation initiatives. We need policies on renewable energy that are driven by national and mm -hmm. European and international policies. This, so this, that this is the group um, led by Ben Barber, who's written a book called If Mayors Rule the World, which can either yeah, be yeah. wonderful or freaky, depending yeah. which mayor you're yeah, thinking about. Yeah. But, uh, but so I mean, the reality is certainly in America, for instance, there is a grouping of mayors, I don't know, forgotten the title, who have all got together and said we are doing much more on climate change than the national government is doing. No, that's true. That's our one so, last question, I think. So that collectivity of, of voices from the local level have an impact at the national and international last level. Last question. Arthur Caruya, I'm an architect. I wanted to ask you if, um, if you have estimated the total number of people, the population that your um, regenerative city can sustain. I think it depends. And how, and Sorry. how that compares to the projected population living in cities if one assumes that China and the South will achieve the rate of urbanization that we already have in here? I think it's something that your department, I think, really gets, needs to get stuck into. I mean, the, the question of the size of cities. You see, I'm only one guy with only one brain, you know. So, I mean, it needs, it needs uh, the collectivity of researchers to get really into these issues in a major way, and I think... You know, all your research students, I mean, there must be a lot of PhDs that could uh, begin to address this issue. I mean, certainly, I mean, we are dealing with un 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 unprecedented numbers of people in cities globally as well as in each individual city. I mean, in Europe, we are really relatively lucky because our cities are not that large. I mean, London, with 8.5 million people now, is compared with, with uh, Tokyo, which is, you know, the city region has got nearly 40 million people now. Chongqing in China, 35 million and quite a few.